Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. There's a lot brewing in Louisiana today. So on this week's show, we're going to meet the innovators, the brewers, and the mixologists who are making that magic happen. We begin with the newest, wetland sake. Yes, that favorite drink of Japan is being made right here in Louisiana using Louisiana rice. We'll hear the complete story from founders Nan Wallace and Lindsay Beard. Then we sit down with the founder of PJ's Coffee, Phyllis Jordan, to hear her brewing story. It's a historic tale, to say the least. Finally, we've got you covered with that sudsy delight, beer. We'll hear from Abita founder David Blossman and the mythical Steve Hindi of Brooklyn Brewery. Prepare to be thirsty on this week's Louisiana Eats. In New Orleans, the Chapatula Street Corridor has recently been dubbed Brewery Row because of the litany of breweries that have taken residence in the formerly empty warehouses lining the Mississippi River. Just off Chop on Orange Street is a whole new type of brewery the first in Louisiana to produce a spirit that long has been a staple of Japanese cuisine, sake. My name is Nan Wallace, and I'm one of the co-founders of Wetlands Sake. My name is Lindsay Beard, and I am the other co-founder of Wetlands Sake. Nan Wallace and Lindsay Beard invited us over to tour the Wetlands Sake Brewery and Tap Room, the results of an idea the two friends dreamt up only years prior. Lindsay and I have known each other most of our lives, and we were um, talking one night over dinner, talking about how much we like sake, and I had just been traveling with my husband around the United States and had been to many cities where on every fine dining restaurant menu, barbecue joint menu, in the bigger cities, they all have a section of sake on the menu. And so I came back and Lindsay and I were talking and she said, I love sake too. And we were like, too bad there's not more available good sake in New Orleans. I said, cause it's starting to pop up around the country, little breweries all over. They're called nano breweries. They're smaller than we are, but they're making American sake as well. And so Lindsay said, somebody should be doing it here because we're, the land of rice. And then about uh, two weeks after that, I show up to my house and Nan had left a bag of rice on my front doorstep that said, give me a call. I've done some research. Someone should be doing it and it should be us. Ah. <laughs> so what had you found, Nan? So after doing quite a bit of research over two weeks, like nonstop, I was just crazy about it. I figured out that um, sake is really the next 
growth spirit in the United States. I mean, everything else has had its moment. Sake has not had its moment yet, but it is right now one of the fastest growing liquors in America. Over the last five years, they started out with five small nano breweries in the United States, and now there are 20, and we're one of the 20. Um, there have been about two or three Japanese-owned breweries in the United States since the 60s. They're out in California and Oregon, and they've been making sake since then, but never really figured out how to penetrate the United States market that well. So we were convinced there was another way to make American craft sake and market it in such a way that the American public really came to like it and drink it. And be able to approach it easier, you know, understand it, just to try it. You just called it a liquor. Would you explain to people what sake really is? Sake is really inappropriately, I guess, or mistakenly called rice wine. And that's what it's always been referred to in the United States. That is really not what sake is. Um, There's nothing winish about it. Sake is a fermented beverage that only uses four ingredients. We are much more like a beer than we are like a wine. Not in taste, but in process, the way you make it. So it's all natural, it's gluten-free, it's vegan, and there are no additives or preservatives in sake. The liquor community, of distributors and wholesalers, et cetera, would consider us a liquor because we're alcohol. But oh. It's not a spirit in any it's way, not a spirit. an alcoholic spirit. It's a brewed beverage. Like beer and wine, sake is a fermented alcohol, but with a vastly different fermentation process. It's divided in two stages, beginning with growing a mold called koji on short grain rice. Louisiana is known for its rice, but we only grow long and medium grains here. Seeking out the shorter variety in our state, Nan took several trips to the H. Rouse Caffey Rice Research Station in Crowley, Louisiana, to meet with its director, Dustin Harrell. These trips yielded no results. So finally, after going back and forth up to Crowley four or five times, and just continuing to quiz him on things and saying there must be some way we can do this and him just saying I really don't think so. We had pretty much said well looks like this is the end of the road we're not going to go if we can't do Louisiana rice and lo and behold I get a call a little bit later on a Saturday and I look him up and I go that's Dustin that's odd and so I go hey Dustin what's going on he goes Nan I have the perfect rice for you and I'm like well how could that be I've been up there like six times you know. Dustin spoke to us via Zoom to explain how he discovered that short grain rice. It dawned on me that, you know, we did develop a short grain variety by one of our now retired rice breeders at at the Rice Research Station back in 2003. Dr. Steve Linscombe developed a short grain variety called Piro, named after the canoe for, you know, that was common uh, in Louisiana. And um, he had developed it for a rice mill that was had a very specialized market that they thought that they could sell it to. And uh, it turns out that they didn't have the market and it never took off and it died almost as soon as it was developed. And it was 
almost forgotten about. And so I knew that it was a short grain variety and I called her and I said, well, I, I may have something um, that will work. And he's like, I just forgot about it. We <laughs> created the strain of rice and it's perfect. It looks like a little pearl. It's beautiful and it's short grain rice. And I'm like, he goes, and it's high starch. And I go, well, that sounds great. I said, so you have it there? I can come pick some up. And he goes, no. And I said, well, you just <laughs> said you have it. And he said, no, you have to grow it. <laughs> and so. And so the only rice that we had is what we call breeder seed. Um, it's probably the most um, pure amount of seed, but it was only a very small amount. And so basically we had to take that seed, put it in the field and grow it out to what we call foundation seed. And um, I said, well, we can do that for you, um, but the minimum we can do is an acre. And if we're gonna spend the money to do that, you pretty much have to buy the whole acre's worth of seed, and that's gonna be about 7,000 pounds of rice. So Nan goes, okay, Dustin, and, call, and said, let me talk to Lindsay, and she calls me, and I said, well, if we were ever gonna take the chance, this is gonna be it. So we committed to growing that first 7,000 pounds in hopes that it would turn out to be a great sake brewing rice. And uh, luckily, we took that leap of faith that day, and we were very happy and surprised when the test results came back. Rather than sticking with only filtered or unfiltered sake, Nan and Lindsay were keen to offer other flavors. They brought in mixologist Susie Bonenstegel to expand their product line. Here's Susie. Well, we tried to come up with some different flavors that would appeal to everybody. No other spirit is added it's just with the sake so that's why we're calling them cocktail inspired sake infusions and they're small batch so that we can add different flavors to them and change them up based on the season or what people are really liking at the time they all have different abvs so there's something for everyone and then there's also what the brewers create we have a, a sparkling hibiscus and there's also a hoppy sake that the brewers added citra hops to to add something for beer lovers so really really interesting things going on here in the tap room oh it's really lovely in a glass uh, of course we don't have to talk about what kind of glassware because y'all really want everybody to just drink it out the can well we just did it just from being from new orleans you're just used to being able to take a drink wherever you are if you're sitting at a parade or if you're sitting in someone's backyard or just walking the neighborhood or walking your dog at night you know it's nice just to be able to grab a can of something and not have to worry about uh breaking a glass or a bottle or anything so or getting in any trouble yes <laughs> thank you all so much for welcoming us here this is the most interesting thing i've seen in new orleans in quite some time Poppy, thank you so much for coming and for letting people know what we're doing over here at Wetland Sake. That was Nan Wallace, Lindsay Beard, and Susie Bonenstegel of Wetland Sake. We also heard from Dustin Harrell, former director of the LSU Ag Center's Rice Research Station in Crowley, Louisiana. What is the worldwide measure for alcohol? 
then what does it all mean? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew with their new box subscription program. Shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to join the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets, tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the worldwide measure for alcohol, and what does it all mean? The worldwide measurement is ABV, which stands for alcohol by volume. The ABV of any drink indicates the percentage that is pure alcohol. It's also actually an indicator of how a drink will taste. Beverages with a high ABV are harsher on the tongue. Beer is usually at the lower end of the spectrum, with 5 to 6% ABV being common in the industry. But IPAs are normally higher, ranging about 11%. Terrifyingly, a Scottish beer called snake venom, weighs in at 67.5%. Yikes! It even comes with a yellow warning label that says if you drink a whole bottle of the stuff, it could kill you. I think I'll pass on that. Wines, on average, are in the 12 to 18% range, but fortified wines like port and sherry can reach ABVs as high as 25%. Most distilled spirits, like whiskey, rum, vodka, gin, and tequila, run 30 to 40 ABV. Most importantly, the higher the ABV, the more potent the beverage. Something to always keep in mind the next time you embark on a wild night out. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Phyllis Jordan. I'm the founder of PJ's Coffee. On September 5, 1978, 
Phyllis Jordan opened a small shop in New Orleans she called PJ's Coffee. For over two decades under her leadership, PJ's Coffee became the city's first coffee house chain, as well as a beloved local institution. With the modern proliferation of coffee chains and the rise of coffee house culture, it's easy to forget that once upon a time, you'd be hard-pressed to find specialty coffee in the United States. And in New Orleans in the late 70s, one particular kind of coffee held sway, one that a newly arrived transplant was not very keen on. Yeah, um, coffee in New Orleans was... um, it was chicory coffee. It was you drank chicory coffee, and that was it, pretty much. And I was lucky enough to have seen coffee starting up, or specialty coffee starting up on the West Coast. I lived there for a while, and when I came here and realized no one was really doing that, I thought there's an opportunity here. With no formal business education, Phyllis opened PJ's Coffee and Tea Company on Maple Street, anchored in the university section. Originally. PJ's was strictly a retail store, selling a varied selection of coffees by the pound, loose-leaf teas, and all the accoutrements. All the paraphernalia for the rituals of friendship was one of the lines I used in advertising. Though the word paraphernalia is a little bit loaded and didn't really bring in a wide audience. Upon installing a used bun coffee maker, Phyllis opened a cafe in her one-room shop, furnished with only a table and four chairs. And when that table and four chairs started filling up on a more regular basis, I put in more tables and chairs and more tables and chairs. And and that's how it worked. So I always had two coffees, at least, a medium roast and a dark roast. And it it changed by by the day. And, um, you know, it was just, it was trial and error. I, you know, I made all the mistakes. (laughs) So... (laughs) Nonetheless, the lines at the counter kept getting longer, and Phyllis began the process of transforming her business into a coffee powerhouse. She challenged old concepts of coffeehouse culture and brought in a breath of fresh air. Well, a coffeehouse in 1980 or so, when I was first doing this part of the business, was really connected to beatniks, which is a very old word, but it still... It, the coffee house conjures up beatniks, darkness, and only a certain kind of cool that you could be. And that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted moms to come in with their kids. I wanted business people to come in to do some paperwork. I wanted everyone to feel comfortable coming in. So I always played classical music, but not orchestral music. I played chamber music because you could talk over it and Encouraging conversation was a big part of what I was after. Over the next several years, as she could afford it, Phyllis began to install better equipment and expand cafe operations. An espresso machine made its first appearance in the early 80s. Changes were slow, but sensible. I can only push the envelope so far, for one thing. I mean, people still would walk into my store and say, oh, you'll never make it. Because we, we drink chicory coffee here. Uh-huh. And I said, well, that's fine. Good. <laughs> you stay over there. Um, and uh, and I, I did from time to time sell chicory coffee, but I hated it. And I just did it to appease my staff. And then I would say, no, you were not going to do this. And the reason I didn't want, didn't want to do it is chicory is a whole different plant. And you can't put 
whole bean coffee and chicory through a grinder because it will gum the grinder up. So you have to sell it as a ground coffee product. I couldn't make myself do that. For freshness reasons, I was going to sell whole bean coffee. In 1984, PJs moved into whole bean roasting to further assure their coffee's freshness. That same year, Phyllis opened her second coffee house in uptown New Orleans. Someone who'd been baking for me, because I did have, by the time I had pastries from various small bakers, um, decided that it would be better for him if he just opened his own coffee house on Magazine Street. And so he, he did that. And he used colors that I was using in my store. And, you know, he he just kind of ripped me off. Yeah, he just kind of franchised without a franchise. Yeah, yeah, before I was franchising. And um, that really made me mad. Luckily, I was able to buy him out. And I did that. And uh, that's how the Magazine Street store was started. The second store was Magazine Street. Then Tulane University came to me and said, we'd like to have something on campus. I think it was 250 square feet. It was very, very small. It was a glass box. It was impossible to cool in the summertime. Anyway, that was just fabulous. I mean, that was such a great place to be. As the Coffee by the Cup business expanded to Tulane's campus, Phyllis's original concept for PJs was amended to make room for grab-and-go. Well, in spite of my very strong feelings about a lot of things, I do have a little bit of sense, and so I did understand that I had to have a to-go cup pretty early, um, although I tried to keep China in the stores for a very long time. So I was already doing coffee to-go by that point. Um, so I guess that wasn't too much of a leap for me. But, you know, uh, in other markets, I don't. I think we've had only a couple of them tr- be tried here without success, is the drive-through only coffee oh. business. Yeah. And I never wanted to do that because... I always figured if you came through a drive-thru at a PJ's, and we did have them, at least you knew there were people inside. Yeah. That you could have, if, if only you could sit down and, and stay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, I, so I just, I did adjust. I did make adjustments to my um, strongly held views, or I would have starved. <laughs> Other adjustments Phyllis made were triggered by national and local chains, like Community Coffee, expanding their cafe operations in the 1990s. Community, of course, started probably 1991, maybe. Mm-hmm. So they were the only multiple location competition that I had until Starbucks came in town. My goodness. And they, of course, opened their very first store, three doors down from my Maple Street store, which was the most successful store, which is a great retail strategy. Of course. I had a line out the door every morning and it was easy pickings. That back of that line was real easy to get. So that's when we introduced the express line. Because <laughs> by that time, there was the lattes and there was the, you know, the syrups and the you know, this, 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 and that. And if you want to come in and get a cup of hot black coffee and you can put your cream and sugar in it by yourself or an iced coffee, which is very easy to get to a customer quickly. Um, that was the express line. Perhaps PJ's greatest national contribution, something Phyllis is rarely given credit for, is the introduction of what today is often called New Orleans-style iced coffee. Starbucks may have opened first, 
1971, but it was over 20 years before they began serving their version of iced coffee, something they trademarked Frappuccino. Meanwhile, here in New Orleans, Phyllis was experimenting with her version of iced coffee, an idea sparked by a childhood memory. I'm a native of St. Louis, which is a very German city. And my mother and her friends in the subdivision drank iced coffee. And it was a German tradition. Now, that their idea of iced coffee was yesterday's coffee poured over ice and so forth, which is an abomination as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> there was, at the time, a coffee supplier in New Orleans named Mike Buckley, who I was buying some coffee from. And Mike knew about the Toddy Cold Water Coffee Maker. So I started doing cold brew coffee for iced coffee only. That was phenomenally successful. So between my mother and Mike Buckley, I was able to make it happen. In the mid-'80s, Phyllis was the first retailer serving iced coffee commercially in New Orleans. Pretty much. And really, across the country, I was pretty much the first one. Amazing. Because I can remember going into coffee meetings at national levels, you know, mid-'80s. All the big coffee, the General Mills people and all those guys, would stand up at me and say that young people just aren't going to drink coffee. Young people do not drink coffee, and they're, not, they're never going to. They want it cold. And I'd stand up and say, uh, yes, I'm doing cold coffee in New Orleans. It's doing very well. Yes, a young audience is very attracted to this. And then they would, they, I would sit down. And nobody paid any attention to me for a long, long, long time. Now it is a phenomenon. At the turn of the century, the 21st century, that is, between the stores Phyllis owned and stores that were franchised, there were over 30 PJ's coffee shops in Orleans Parish and throughout the Gulf South. So at what point did this New Orleans coffee pioneer decide to call it a day? <laughs> it was about 99 or 2000. Of course, these kind of things take a while to mature and to happen. There were many, many steps involved. Um, um, but I, I was tired. I was tired. You know, I have a B.A. in sociology. That's my educational background. Yeah. <laughs> I learned to love to read a financial statement. I can't put one together, but I love to read them. I love to use them as a tool. That was about as close as I got to being really businesslike, and I, but I was good about that. So over time, I, I found a buyer. Um, that luckily didn't work out. It was bought by a group of people in Atlanta, and um, it has been bought back from Atlanta by the Ballard Brothers in Covington, and they now are running it out of Covington, still being roasted within view of the Mississippi River on North Peters Street, and it's still being roasted by people that I hired. (laughs) (laughs) Dallas Jordan founder of her namesake PJ's Coffee of New Orleans and mother of iced coffee.
My name is David Blossman. I am the president of the Vita Brewing Company. David Blossman is a man ahead of his time. Long before it was legal for him to drink, David was experimenting with home brewing, making small batches of beer as a hobby. At 17 years old, he invested his teenage savings into what would become the Abita Brewing Company. Over 30 years later, he's now the president. David joined us to talk about Abita's pioneering role in the craft beer movement, beginning with its founding in 1986. You know, Richard McCarthy from Slow Food USA likes to say here in New Orleans, we were slow before anybody told us it was a good thing to be. And a beat of beer was craft beer before we knew that craft beer should exist in the world. It's true. Um, Like a lot of uh, trends, they start on the coast and work themselves in. And, uh, you know, when Abita started brewing in um, 86, uh, there really weren't that many of them. I I don't remember off the top of my head, but there might have been like eight. We might have been one of the first 10 or something. Certainly that's in existence today um, that uh, started up. And so, uh, you know, in the southeast, it was by far the first one. We weren't even close. From those early days, what beers are now your standards? Well, our number one beer uh, is Amber. And it's a beautiful amber lager, and it was the first beer we ever brewed. And uh, that and Golden, which we discontinued. And um, we really thought when we started out that Golden, which was a continental lager, which is more like the fresh-tasting European beer that you could get here. Mm-hmm. We thought, that's going to be our number one beer. But, you know, it had a difference in that it was fresh and probably a little more maltier, and, um, you know, which helped out with Louisiana cuisine. But it wasn't a huge point of difference where Amber – that was a radical beer back then. People Absolutely. talk about radical beers now, you know, 10 plus percent alcohol and whatever, hoppy and bitter and whatever, you know, you know, aged in, you know, cognac barrels, whatever. Right, know? right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, but you got to look back then. That was kind of extreme because it was so different. And uh, it really was designed to go so well with our cuisine. It's so versatile. Uh, it's malty, but it is balanced. You know, there is some bitterness, but just enough to, to balance out the sweetness so it goes down smooth. And it really offsets really spicy or, or rich dishes very, very well. It stands the test of time. It's still our number one beer. I don't think anybody was even thinking about pairing beer and food back then. Well, coming from Louisiana, you have to do that. That's part of our social <laughs> you know, heritage, right? You know, We sit down to a meal, and we like to enjoy it with friends and family, and it's not a holiday setting. It's a backyard barbecue. It's tailgating. and I, You know, we tailgate. We, yeah. There's food involved, right? Great food. Right. It, you know, it's a gumbo cook or a crawfish boil. It's clubbing. It, you know, it, it's uh, all those things. And it also fine dining. It needs to stand on its own on the table. And I, I think beer really, really does well. Fine beer is great on a table because it really has a lot going for it. You know, the carbonation in itself is great with food because it scrubs the, the tongue of oils and lifts it kind of like a champagne would do and leaves you ready to taste again. And, you know, wine can't do that. And, and look, I like wine. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, people always say wine and cheese pairings. I always laugh because it's like, the cheese sticks on your tongue, at least fatty cheeses, which I like the best. Yeah. And, and, you know, it does nothing to remove that off your tongue so you can really enjoy some more tastings of, of the liquid and the cheese. But uh, beer does that, and uh, certainly so versatile from the different flavors of, you know, blonde beers to dark beers to amber beers and the beer flavor wheel. 
it's about 30% larger than the Y one. Incredible. And, and we don't make things up either. <laughs> oh, this was grown on, you know, yeah. I could taste the tobacco. Oh, it's, <laughs> I know. It's not all fussy quite like that. David, tell me how Abita grows. The growth that you all have experienced in profile, in distribution, in everything. I mean, you all have just become a giant in the industry in many ways. Well, we're still very small in comparison to the larger brewers, but I hear what you're saying. There's no doubt. We're a top 20 craft brewer in, in the United States, and we don't have the population background. Like, you know, if we were in somewhere in the West Coast in a big city or, you know, in a bigger southern city like, uh, let's say, Houston or Dallas or Atlanta, I mean, you look at our market share, you're like, wow, we'd be this big. But we are a success story, but it's it's not me. I mean, it's the idea, it's the people, it's the team, it's the location. It's the beer. It's the water. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of, you know, things behind it. And, 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 you know, we're not one to pound our chest and, oh, you know, pat ourselves on the back. We just like doing what we're doing. And, and um, that in itself is our own reward. But when people enjoy it, you know, that's it. And we would not have be here today if it wasn't for the culinary industry really taking us under their wings and putting us on the table and seeing our vision and really pushing us in the right direction and um, help us out so much. Um, you know, in the beginning, our beers were all over the place and they just were from batch to batch. They were different. Wanting to try and experiment with us with new things and um, being patient with us, that was very important. And I'm very thankful for that. How do you all dream these things up? I love this uh, this idea of you all being the the big operation that you are with this flexibility of always wanting to try new things. And part of it has to do with the magic of your tasting room and people mm-hmm. being able to come and visit yeah. your facility, right? No doubt. And it's our best way to interact with our fans. I mean, our homebrewing background and our adventureness, you know, in Louisiana, we love cooking new things, too. So you marry our culture with the homebrew spirit and love for, for making great beers. Um, we want to do those things. And to see that backed up, like you're saying, in our tasting room and in other bars and restaurants, it's very, very important. And also uh, with our social media channels and stuff, that people, our fans tell us, you know, and, and we follow them, you know, if – they really like this and want to go in another direction. You know, we think about it. We really do value their input. We're doing three or four test brews a week. So we're constantly trying new things. And that's the homebrew spirit in us is we always want to try new things and do things differently. That's not the best business model. The best business model would be to stick to one or two brands, get behind them and, you know, market them and do a great job with them. And that's really the import model. But that's not the craft spirit, you know, that we're adventurous and we want to try new things. David Blossman, president of the Abita Brewing Company. Coming up next, we get the inside story of the craft beer revolution with Steve Hindy of Brooklyn Brewery. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm 
Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Steve Hindi is one of the visionaries of American craft beer. Along with Tom Potter, Steve co-founded Brooklyn Brewery over three decades ago. Today, you can enjoy Brooklyn Brewery beer in over 30 countries and 34 states, including Louisiana. In his book, The Craft Beer Revolution, Steve explores the history of the movement, what it means to be a craft brewer, and how the word microbrewery was coined. In the beginning of the craft beer revolution, people called us microbreweries. And actually that term, I learned in researching my book, that term was chosen by a young guy who was working for the American Homebrewers Association in Boulder, Colorado. And he was a computer geek. Uh, so he was into microprocessors. <laughs> And he said, you know, these small breweries are kind of like microbreweries. And that's how that term came to be. The term craft beer developed more in the 90s uh, when the brewers formed an association. And we were trying to figure out how do we define the people we represent. And we coined the term craft brewers. Craft brewers are small, independent breweries dedicated to traditional practices and innovative practices uh, in the brewing industry. Uh, we have sort of expanded the American palate for beer uh, to a rainbow of styles that the big brewers had kind of ignored over the last 50, 60 years. Well, gosh, it's incredibly thrilling to have this opportunity to talk to you because you're widely recognized as one of the very first pioneers. So take us back to how it all started in the 1960s and explain your place in it all. You know, the real pioneer was Fritz Maytag, who uh, lived in San Francisco and bought a failing brewery called the Anchor Brewing Company in 1965. And really, Fritz was alone uh, in producing flavorful American beer. Then in 1976, you had the New Albion Brewery in Sonoma, California, started by a guy named Jack McAuliffe and uh, a couple of women, uh, Susie Stern and, and Jane Zimmerman. That was really the first real craft brewery, the first real microbrewery 
in America. That was a brewery cobbled out of, you know, Pepsi tanks and milk tanks, and uh, it was it was kind of doomed to failure because it was too small, and nobody knew what craft beer was way back then. And then in the early 80s, you had Sierra Nevada, you had Red Hook, you had uh, the Widmer brothers, and Brooklyn Brewery didn't start until 1988. I, d I don't call myself a pioneer in the book. I feel that I'm part of what I call the first generation of craft brewers. The large brewers, I think, thought we were a fad and were going to go away. Uh, but obviously we have not gone away, and now those giant brewers are trying to create brands that compete in our category. So they've, I think, come around to accepting us. But actually, in the back of the book, in the appendix, I do a chronology of big brewer efforts to compete in the craft segment. And it really started in the 80s. I mean, they have introduced dozens, probably hundreds of beers trying to compete with us, but they never really stuck with them. You know, they came and they went. Only in the last couple of years have they begun to focus and promote, you know, beers like Blue Moon and Shock Top, Blue Moon being owned by Miller Coors, Shock Top by AB InBev, and now they're really playing hard in our segment. But I believe it's a real dilemma for them because the more they promote flavor in beer, the more they undercut their huge brands, you know, the light beers and the the light lager beers that they make. So I think it's a double-edged sword for the big guys. That is such an interesting point of view. So there wasn't ever any, like, dirty backroom deals. They didn't try to rub any of you guys out, huh? Well, I tell you, they are tough competitors. I remember the first time I took down a Budweiser tap, and it was at a place called... Louder Milks in Brooklyn, which is a club on a residential street. It was really kind of a strange place. And I came back to the brewery with that tap, and I was parading around. I still have the tap in my office, parading around saying, look at this, my first Budweiser tap. Well, they came down on me like a ton of bricks. I went back into that bar a few days later, and my tap was gone. And the owner, George Loudermilk, told me, yep, they, they made me a pretty good deal. You're out. So I learned a lesson there. Don't gloat. Now, from your point of view, you described yourself previously as being the first generation of craft brewers. Tell us about how things have changed and who are the ensuing generations? Well, if you think about the brewers who started in the 80s, that's what I call the first generation. And for us, craft brewing was about the German purity law, the Reinheitsgebot, you know, only using grain and hops and water and yeast in, in the beer. The point of difference between us and the big guys was that we were making all malt beers and we were adhering to this uh, German purity law. You might think of us as kind of the baby boomer uh, generation. Then in the 90s, breweries opened that were dedicated to Belgian-style beers, like New Belgium Brewery in, in Fort Collins, Colorado, started by Kim Jordan and her husband, Jeff Lebisch. They were focused on making Belgian-style beers exclusively. 
those beers don't necessarily abide by the German purity law. They have fruit beers, they have beers with, uh, you know, with different grains in them and different yeast, and uh, it's a very different style of brewing. There were other seminal breweries in that second generation. Maybe, maybe you'd call them the Gen Xers, like Rob Todd with Allagash Brewery in Maine, Vinny Chilurzo with Russian River Brewery uh, in California. And these were people who were really pushing the envelope, making sour beers, making beers that are aged in wine barrels or, or whiskey barrels, a whole flowering of uh, exploration and innovation happened in the 90s. And the amazing thing is that the European countries that inspired us, like the UK and Germany and Belgium, they are now copying the beers that we're making here in America. Uh, so it's, it's really come full circle. There are a lot of people who may not be familiar with the names, the words, much less the roles that nano and gypsy breweries are playing in the industry now. Talk to us about the nano breweries and the gypsy breweries. You know, the last chapter of my book explores what I call the third generation. These are kind of like the millennials of the craft beer movement. And it, it's interesting. When I started Brooklyn Brewery, my goal was to become a big brewery. I mean, I wanted to sell some beer. A lot of the new people starting up have less ambitious goals, and they're really focused on building a lifestyle for themselves. So there are quite a few people who don't even have breweries. They contract with other breweries to make beers for them, and you know they're more involved with marketing the beer, and many of them are very focused on a local audience. They kind of like the role that a brewer can play in a community, and they're satisfied uh, with staying small, which I think is a beautiful thing. I think if you look at the future, there are going to be many different models of craft brewery that are going to be successful. There are going to be national brands, there are going to be international craft breweries, and there are going to be local breweries. There are going to be breweries like New Glarus in Wisconsin. They only sell in their home state. There are many niches here. This is not like the old days where the mainly German brewers were all making the same kind of beer. There's just an incredible flowering of uh, beer culture in, in America. Beer, from the point of view of your average American, really started off as being sort of the blue-collar drink. So how have you watched the beer drinkers change? Well, I think beer is still the blue-collar drink. I mean, you can't compare craft beer to wine, for instance. To have a great wine cellar, you've got to be a very rich person. But you can have the best beers in the world in, in your house at a reasonable price. Beer is still beer, you know. It's just that I think people are savoring beer and thinking more about what's in their beer and who's behind their beer uh, today. And I think that partly explains why the decline in consumption but the rise of craft beer, which I think is a good thing for, for America. Steve Hindy, co-founder of Brooklyn Brewery and author of The Craft Beer Revolution.
that's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, and producer Blake Longlinay. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. Thank you.